Welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 61. We've spent the last few times here on Teaching Thursdays thinking about wisdom. And although wisdom can be viewed as a how-to, generally speaking, sometimes it's good to think about wisdom in very particular circumstances. And one of those that we probably don't think about all that often is utilizing wisdom in the way that we go about praying. Prayer is something that many of us just kind of wing. We don't have much of a strategy. We don't have much of a process. We just pray just as if we are having a conversation with anybody. And although that sentiment can be understood, and I can be sympathetic to that in a lot of ways, I understand what's being communicated by people when they say prayer is just conversation with God, there's also a right and a wrong way to go about it. In this episode, we want to go straight to the source to find out the best way to wisely go about praying. And I can't think of a better passage of scripture to look at than the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us exactly what it should look like when we pray and how to go about it, how to structure our prayer, and the things that we should be thinking about when we ask questions such as, what exactly is prayer after all? So this episode is going to be an analysis of the Lord's Prayer, and I hope by the end of it, you're able to look at prayer from a wise perspective and go about it in a way that honors the Lord. Thanks for listening to the Better Bible Reading Podcast. All right, well, today um, I'd like us to examine the Lord's Prayer, which, as I said, this is a super familiar passage to all of us, uh, I would say, without exception. And uh, we have really two places in the Bible that record the Lord's Prayer, but we're going to be looking at um, Matthew 6 and looking at verses 9 through 13. Uh, Let me read for us those verses and then we'll kind of direct our attention to a real central way that I'd like us to look at this this morning. But here's what it says, starting in verse 9 of, of Matthew 6. Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then some manuscripts will insert, as we say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So, I want us to think about prayer this morning. And that's a massive topic, right? The idea of prayer, there's no way that I could even halfway cover everything there is to think and know about prayer in a Sunday school class. Um, So, what I'd like us to do is to think specifically about Jesus' model of prayer that he gives us right here in Matthew chapter 6. I remember a time where I was at a previous church and we were doing kind of door-to-door evangelism. But it wasn't so much door-to-door evangelism as it was door-to-door prayer. That was kind of our segue. We go around the neighborhoods that were semi-close to our church. We'd knock on doors And as the people opened the doors, we would introduce ourselves, say what church we were from, and then we would just say, is there anything that I could pray with you about today? And some people that was, you know, refreshing to them and they welcomed that. Other people, 
Not so much. Uh, but I do remember one particular uh, house that myself and another gentleman went to. We knocked on the door and the lady came to the door, opened it, and we did, hey, we're with this church. This is who we are. Can we pray with you about anything today? And she said, no, I think my life is going pretty well right now, so I don't need any prayer, but thanks. And that was the end of the conversation. And I walked away from that thinking, first of all, I'm glad everything's going great with you in your life. I'm not against that. But second of all, people have a very distorted view of prayer. People have a view of prayer, such as her case, you only pray when things are bad. That's pretty much what, what we walked away considering. She must think you only pray when things are bad. Or you only pray when you need something. Or you only pray before you eat your meals or else you're going to get diarrhea because you didn't pray, right? I mean, that, you know, there's, there's this strange concept that we have, this weird categorization of prayer where that, maybe that was a little bit too much first thing in the morning. So, but you think about it. I mean, people think you're going to get struck by lightning or whatever if you don't pray before your meal. But those very same people will neglect prayer in all these other categories. Or they'll just say, well, you don't need to pray before your meal because that's being legalistic, right? God already wants it to nourish your body. That's why he gave us. I've heard that so many times and it gets me so angry. But... Suffice to say that when we think about prayer, it should not terminate on just one aspect. And I think that's why the Lord's Prayer is so helpful to us, because Jesus doesn't terminate it on one aspect. In fact, I think for the sake of um, really seeing the context, I'd like to back us up all the way to verse 5 of chapter 6. Because Jesus really starts addressing prayer In verse 5, he's in the middle of this discourse, in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount. And he's really touching all of these categories of life. When he starts talking about prayer, he starts in verse 5. And if somebody would would, uh, read verses 5 through 8 to kind of get an idea of what is behind the, the Lord's Prayer. Okay, so... It kind of has the negative side of prayer. Don't pray like this. Don't be like this when you pray. And then that's what leads him to give us the model of prayer, which is the Lord's Prayer, verses 9 through 13. And then he has a little caveat, actually, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, verses 14 and 15, which says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others your trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So, There's this kind of broad sweep of prayer that Jesus gives to us in Matthew 6. But when we think about the Lord's Prayer, I think it's important for us to note um, a few different elements that can be helpful um, to us, especially when we think about two aspects of our lives. Number one, when we come here and worship and gather together corporately as God's people. And number two, our own private and family times of worship at our houses. Um, This, I think, will really help us in both of those categories um, when we study and examine the way that Jesus organizes this prayer, this template that He's given to us. But some of you may be aware, and some of you may not be, that 
in our own historic tradition, um, we have a really beautiful way that prayer is communicated to us. Um, and it's as simple as taking a look at one of these. Um, this is not the case in every Presbyterian church, and even in our own denomination, it's not the case with every Presbyterian church. But those who would categorize themselves as sometimes traditional, sometimes you'll hear the phrase confessional, or just simple or ordinary means of grace church. I'm, I'm sure some of you have heard that phrase as well. Really what you see is not so much a contemporary model of worship, but you see a more simplistic form of worship. And one of the things that is, in my experience, as brief as it may be, in the PCA, that when you go to those churches that would identify as confessional churches, ones that are more simplistic in style and form in their worship, you don't see a lot of bells and whistles, you don't see a lot of craziness happening on Sunday mornings, but you see just a simple emphasis on preaching the Word of God and prayer and the sacraments. Um, you see, um, at least for myself, I see a common thread. And in fact, when you look at our own structure of Sunday worship, there's a method to the way that the liturgy is designed. And you don't have to look at this right now, but I will uh, encourage you to look at it when we go out of here before we start at, at 1045. But there is an emphasis placed on the way that worship is conducted in what we call our, our liturgy, uh, the way that worship flows from beginning to end. And one of the ways that you see this happening is the ways that we pray, the ways that we pray on Sunday mornings in the worship service itself. And the way that we pray is in a, a common uh, Phrase, and you'll hear it referred to as ACTS. And how many of you, I'm curious, are already familiar with what I'm talking about? Okay. So for those of you that aren't, this is a simple acronym. ACTS, it's Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. Now, if you think about those four words, you hear them quite often on Sunday mornings. We're going to have our prayer of adoration. We're going to have our prayer of confession, our prayer of thanksgiving and supplication. You hear those words used a lot, four different words used for prayer. Well, where do those come from? Do they just invented out of thin air? Well, I want to show you that where they come from is actually in the model of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gives to us here in Matthew chapter 6. So notice, first of all, in verse 9 that Jesus doesn't suggest for us something. He commands us towards something. He gives us a command. He gives us instruction. Pray then like this. This is how you should be praying. Now, I don't think it's important that we say that the only way we pray is to simply say every single word here that's in the Lord's Prayer. I don't think it's wrong to but I've actually had, believe it or not, I've spoken with people who think that when Jesus says this, He's telling us that we don't really do a good job praying, so if we want to play it safe, we should only ever pray the Lord's Prayer. Now, I haven't met a lot of people that think that way, but I have met some. And I don't think that Jesus is giving us a 
recipe or incantation that we just have to repeat, right? I think he really what he's doing is giving us a template. But what he's saying is, these are the things you should be addressing. These are the ways that you should be praying when you pray. So the first one, if we want to go in order with this um, ACTS, the first one is going to be that idea of adoration, prayer of adoration. And before we get any further, what I want to do is actually read really quickly for us here in our own catechism, question 186 in the larger catechism says this. Let me read this for us. And this is addressing the Lord's Prayer. It says, the question is, what rule has God given for our direction in the duty of prayer? And the answer is, the whole Word of God is of use to direct us in the duty of prayer. But the special rule of direction is that form of prayer which our Savior Christ taught His disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. So our confession would say, number one, what is our model of prayer? Answer is the whole Bible, right? Generally speaking, the entire Bible is our model of prayer. But specifically speaking, our model of prayer is what Jesus gives us right here, the Lord's Prayer. Because that's, you don't come across a whole lot of verses in the Bible that explicitly say, this is how you need to be praying. You'll hear a lot of verses telling us to pray in general. Just commanding us to pray in general. But here, specifically, we're commanded a way to pray, an organization of prayer. So, in Matthew 6, verse 9 and verse 10, we see this element of adoration. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, many of us in here have probably said that corporately or at home before bed or whatever the case especially those of us that grew up in church, probably at this point in your life, probably a few thousand times you've said that prayer at, th- throughout the years. But I want us to think about what's actually happening here when Jesus gives the command for us to do this. If you look with me all the way back <clears throat> to the fourth chapter of Genesis, we're going way back, the fourth chapter of Genesis, the very last verse of the fourth chapter of Genesis, you have the aftermath of the most depressing moment in all of human history. This is the aftermath of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden and the reality of sin affecting and infecting all of mankind for all subsequent generations. And in the midst of that, you have God's promise being upheld. And starting in verse 25 of that chapter, Genesis 4, verse 25, I'll read, and then I want you to pay attention to the very last phrase in the chapter. Verse 25 of Genesis 4, it says this. This is after Cain had killed Abel. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And in this phrase here, at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. 
Now, I don't want to read too much into this, because this is kind of a general statement. But I think it's so important for us to understand, first and foremost, that the common pattern of God's people is to call upon Him. And this the idea of a continual calling. It's began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's this repetitive um, pattern of life of calling upon the name of the Lord. But notice also that it's not just calling upon God in general, but calling upon the name of the Lord. That is Yahweh. That is God's covenantal name. So alongside the idea of just calling upon God in general, or just crying out to a God somewhere, somehow, it's the very specific, very personal idea of Yahweh, the Lord. So entailed in all of that has to be a consideration of God's being, God's attributes, God's character. And that's what adoration is all about. It's worshiping God as God. It's glorifying Him. It's calling His traits, His character, His works to the forefront of our minds and celebrating those, celebrating who He is. And you see that again and again in our prayers of adoration. If you notice on Sunday mornings, how do our prayers of adoration normally go? It's a celebration of who God is. It's calling our minds to the attention of the name of the Lord, who God is. When I think about how that is example to us all throughout the Bible, I think probably the best chapter in all of the Bible that does this is probably Psalm 119. And it's a massive chapter. It's the largest chapter in the Bible in terms of content. But it's a celebration of God. It's a celebration of His law. It's a celebration of what He's done. We don't have to go there for very long, but if you want to follow me, you can. If not, I'll just read this. But I want to read one segment of Psalm 119, and that's verse 25 through 32. Verses 25 through 32 of Psalm 119. It says this, notice the emphasis on who God is and how it relates to us. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Now, it's true that when we read this section of Psalm 119, there's a lot of I, 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 my, right? It's it's almost internalized on the psalmist. But if you notice what the psalmist is doing, even as he considers himself, he considers himself in light of who God is. 
So if you wanted to say, okay, so how would I pray a prayer of adoration? I'm not an eloquent speaker. I can't think up things all the time when, I'm, when it's time to pray. It seems like I, I run out of words very quickly. How could I pray a prayer of adoration? Well, you just come to conclusions with what the Word of God says. Even as we walk through this, we could conclude that, that very first verse, that God's Word is life-giving. You pray to God and you celebrate the fact that He gives life to us, that His Word is life-giving. You celebrate the fact in verse 26 that He is a God who listens to us. He's a God who has statutes that are worthy for us to learn, worthy to be taught to us. 27, He has precepts and wondrous works that we should think about, that we should celebrate, that we should call to account. And on and on we could go. Even in that um, passage of Scripture that almost seems like it's talking more about the psalmist than God, I want you to realize even there... He's considering himself in light of who God is. That's what we're doing on Sunday mornings when we gather. We gather as God's people, but we consider ourselves in light of who He is. And that's why we open up with a prayer of adoration. Because we're adoring God. We're crying out that He would be glorified and held in high esteem here as the main event, right? As who we're focusing on in our worship. Going back to the Lord's Prayer... Jesus gives a template for that idea of adoration. Our Father in heaven, right, a consideration of who God is, consideration of His being, of His traits. Hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, many of you have probably heard um, R.C. Sproul's take on the Lord's Prayer. But even before that, I want you to think about our own church has a mission statement. Does anybody know what our mission statement is for this church? Right. It's that His name be hallowed and His kingdom may come. It's just a very brief summary of what we just read. And it's on our website. The reason I know is because I helped put the website on there, so I know that it's there. But also, I think it's even on the t-shirts, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, there you go. It's on the front of the bulletin too. Thanks for that. So, even as a church, we want to focus on this idea that God would be glorified, that His name would be hallowed, that His name would be celebrated for who He is. And I can't help but think all the way back to Genesis 4 as there's that idea of calling upon the name of the Lord, hallowing His name, right? This is our desire as a church, and it's also in... Um, agreement with what Jesus is saying. But I want to share with you what uh, R.C. Sproul commented on with this idea here in the Lord's Prayer. And you probably may have heard this, especially if you're on the Ligonere website and look at stuff, you've probably heard him say this on several different occasions, but here's just one example. He said this, I'm convinced that although we pray for the manifestation and the victory of the kingdom of God, it is futile to hope for the victory of God's kingdom on this planet unless or until the name of God is regarded as sacred, because God's kingdom does not come to people who have no respect for Him. Now, he has a way of putting things, certainly. But I think it's so important that we think about our prayers in this way. When we want to see God work and move in our lives, is it enough to just generally refer to God, or is it 
more important that we focus and centralize upon who he is and what he's done. That may sound elementary, but think about a lot of corporate gatherings of prayer. You normally just hear the Santa Claus prayers, right? Give me stuff. I'll be good. Give me stuff. But you don't hear a focus and a celebration of who God is. Those are far and few between, if we can be honest. I mean, I, before coming to this church and before the last PCA church I was at, um, I cannot think of maybe but just one or two churches that I was ever a part of or went to that really celebrated God for who He was. And not just, we thank you, God, for who you are, and now let's talk about everything that we need in our lives. Let's talk about me, 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 I, I, I. But like I said, those are the Santa Claus prayers. Those are the prayers where we just want him long enough to, get, to give us stuff. Not prayers of celebrating who he is. And R.C. Sproul is making the point that when we want to see God move, individually, corporately, or worldwide... How is it that we think that that's going to happen if we don't even honor him for who he is? And that's why I think the idea of prayer of adoration is so important. I think it really gets our minds thinking in the right ways, even when we start worship at 1045. So it's also interesting, if you do look at our worship guides, that we don't only um, structure our prayers this way, but we also couple together with the prayers two things. First of all, our call to worship is adoring God for who He is. A lot of times you'll hear um, Ken or, or Jesse or whoever's up there, you'll hear the call to worship in this case this morning is Psalm 103. And then the prayer of adoration is normally adoring God for what was said about Him in the call to worship. That's a very simple idea. It's just like I showed you in Psalm 119. The easiest way to kind of have our... Um, direction given to us if we want to know how do we pray this way is to just look at what the Word of God says and agree with that with what we say. I mean, it sounds simple, but I mean, I don't think it's really happening very much, especially individually. When we look at the follow-up after the prayer is done, what do we do? We sing a hymn of adoration. We sing a hymn that focuses on God's character and His being. So I think I've covered that enough. Let's move to the next one. The next one is in that idea, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I want us to look at confession and thanksgiving together because I think they actually happen together. The next phrase, verses 11 and 12 of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So... These two verses, I think, really intermingle the idea of confession and, <clears throat> and thanksgiving. I don't want to really present like a hard line separation between the two because I think they kind of mingle together. But I think there's actually two uh, really good places for us to go um, if we want to see an example, a more in-depth example of what does it mean to pray a prayer of confession and a, and a prayer of thanksgiving. Well, first let's look at what it doesn't mean and go with me to Luke 18. Luke 18, I'm sure you've heard this before. Jesus told a parable here about two men that went into the temple to pray. Luke 
Here's what it says. Starting in verse 9 of Luke 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. One more place I want us to look at, and that is all the way back in the Old Testament, looking to the prophet Daniel. Right after Ezekiel, you'll find Daniel, and we'll look at chapter 9 of Daniel. Now think about the self-righteous man in Luke 18 that we just read about. And think about that in light of Daniel and what he has to say in chapter 9. We'll look at, starting in verse 4, if somebody doesn't mind, will you read... Verses 4 through 15 of Daniel chapter 9. Okay, this is so important for a few reasons. First, notice that Daniel's prayer of confession is informed by adoration towards God. Right? He contrasts himself with who God is. And he opens things up by referring to God, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those whom, who love him and keep his commandments. Right? It's this idea of God's adoration that then informs who we are. It's also significant because really Daniel would have done a good job to, to meet the qualifications of a good and faithful Pharisee. And what I mean by that is Prior to Daniel's life, the prophets spoke about the coming judgment coming upon Israel. There was the, the warnings that you know, Babylon is going to come and overthrow you and bring you into captivity. And those warnings were not heeded. And by the time Daniel comes around, that reality had taken place. Jerusalem was destroyed. The Israelites were taken into slavery to Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel was of those who were brought to live in that land. But Daniel again and again proves himself, right? All those children's church Bible stories we hear about, Daniel in the lion's den, you know, all those, all those stories that Daniel again and again proves himself as one who is faithful to God, one who is blameless in all things. So Daniel could have said, 
Lord, I thank you that I'm not like the rest of the nation that's betrayed you. But what he does is he says, we, us, he understands the significance of breaking God's law, what it means corporately. I think he gives a beautiful example of a prayer of confession, a prayer of confessing who we are in light of who God is and thinking through that. Let me read the very last part of his prayer. Uh, You can jump down with me to verse 18. I'm just going to read 18 and 19. I think this is so, such an important close to his prayer. The whole prayer is important, but I just wanted to, for the sake of time, just look at two parts of it. But look with me in verse 18 of Daniel 9. He says, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. This part is so key here. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people people are called by your name. Now, prayer of confession, especially for those of us who are in Christ, does not end with despair and depression. It ends in hope towards who God is. The only way that we can pray a right prayer of confession is by, number one, thinking about who God is on the front end, and number two, thinking about who He is on the back end. Right? He starts with the God who is gracious and merciful. He ends almost to the point of despair, but He ends in hope because of who God is. And that's what you see at the very end here. So, we don't have prayers of confession We've been justified in Christ. We don't have prayers of confession to just make us feel bad every week. But we have prayers of confession to remember who God is and remember how it is that we have fellowship with a holy and righteous God, even though we are sinners. That's why in our worship, before our prayer of confession, what do we do? What's that? We read God's law. We read the Ten Commandments. We read one of the Ten Commandments. Notice that even Daniel here reflects upon how it is that they are wicked, how it is that they have turned against God, because he knows what the law says, right? Verse 13 says, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. So he understands that template, that gauge. That mirror that we peer into, he sees that as looking to God's law. That's exactly what we do. Before we pray and confess, we consider who God is. We consider what His law says. And we consider how we have broken that. I think it's so important that we do this because it's biblical. It's a biblical consideration. Now, I think I would be amiss if I didn't mention one of the best books, in my opinion of all of Christian literature, period, outside of the Bible, that is. And that is the Confessions of St. Augustine. How many of you guys have read that before? One? Anybody else? Okay. This is one big prayer of confession. The whole book, a conversation between himself and God. And it is so good. Let me just read for you because I think it's... I think it's really good. Let me read for you one particular paragraph here. 
this whole book is kind of a confession of who he is leading up to his salvation and a reflection of that throughout the rest of the book. Here's what he says. You are abiding and unsearchable. You change all things, but are yourself unchanging. You are never new and never old, yet you renew all things. You are always at work and always at rest. You gather to yourself, though you lack nothing. You bring together, fulfill, and protect. You create, nourish, and bring to completion. You seek when you are short of nothing. You love without the fever of passion. You are jealous and fear no rival. You repent but do not regret. You are roused to anger and remain calm. You change your works, but your counsel is unchanged. You take back what you find, yet you had never lost it. You are never in need, yet you rejoice in riches. Never grasping, yet you demand a return from us. For you we perform works beyond our duty to put you in our debt. But when, but who has anything that is not your own? You repay debts, but are no one's debtor. You remit them and suffer no loss. The opening to this whole book is probably a phrase that some of you have heard before when he says, You stir us up to take delight in your praise, for you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless till it finds its rest in you. So, Augustine's prayer here, his confession, is a consideration of God's glory and majesty. And he reflects upon himself in light of that. And it's so good to read, especially devotionally. I would really commend. In fact, I brought an extra copy. If somebody wants it, just come up to me after class and I'll be glad to give it to you. Because I think it's a really good book for us to read and really get our minds wrapped around um, how we confess as Christians, how we confess to the Lord in prayer. And what's significant to me about this book is it is written eloquently, but I think it helps me when I pray because he puts into words and conveys stuff that we feel but don't know how to get out with words, if that makes any sense. So, again, I have an extra copy here. Come up and see me if you want it, and I'll give it to you. But the last uh, consideration that I want us to have is that idea of supplication. We looked at adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and now supplication. And that's the last part of Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer, which says this. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is so important, and I think it's kind of that alarmist mentality of prayer, right? We pray because the devil's lurking here, there, and everywhere. That's not wrong, but I think we have to remember the other elements of prayer as well. Here's what Jesus calls us to, a prayer of supplication. There's a few different ways that we do this. First of all, we pray prayer of supplication individually for ourselves. You see this in right after the, the Lord's Supper, as Jesus goes to Gethsemane to pray in the garden, he says this as a spiritual marching order for the disciples. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So there's the idea that we pray a prayer of supplication for ourselves against temptation. The second example is praying for the church corporately. And you see this 
in James' final instructions in chapter 5, he says, in verse uh, 16, he says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So there's the idea of praying first for ourselves individually, secondly, for one another within the church. Jesus, prior to the Lord's Prayer, addresses in His Sermon on the Mount that we're also supposed to pray a prayer of supplication for our enemies. And you see this when He calls us to love our enemies. He says in Matthew 5, 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. <clears throat> so the idea of a prayer of supplication for ourselves, for one another within the church, for our enemies, and then finally, for all those who are in authority. And that's in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let me turn there real quick and I'll read it for us. 1 Timothy chapter 2, here's what Paul says to Timothy. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. And just by the way, you'll notice he has different elements of prayer that he mentions here. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. What kind of people? For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So the idea of a prayer of supplication is not just, help me not sin today, but it's this worldwide view of things, this worldwide view of all that God is doing. And it covers every single area. It's individually, it's within the church, it's outside the church for those who are enemies, and it's all who God has placed in authority, either in the church or outside of the church. That's why you see prayer structured the way that, that it is. And these are all vital elements of prayer. One last place, and I'd like you to actually turn to this one, is in Ephesians chapter 6. And this part is kind of that that wartime mentality that I was speaking of when we think about prayer. And this is the very well-known passage, Ephesians 6, which is the, the armor of God, the end of Ephesians, starting in verse 10 of chapter 6. Paul says this, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, 
and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you are with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now the sad thing is, when most people think about the armor of God, the conversation normally ends right there. It's like, alright, we went through all the armor pieces, now we're done with it. But first of all, notice that there's not even a period there, it's just a comma. At least in, in my translation, there's a comma. And notice that Paul takes all of these elements of the armor of God and puts an umbrella over them. How does he do that? Well, here's what he says, starting in verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I'll go ahead and read the rest. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, in some ways, the Lord's Prayer is a summary of the entire Christian experience, the entire Christian life. In another way, it's a conversation piece where each element that Jesus addresses associates with one another, informs one another. So there's a few things that I think we should take away from the Lord's Prayer, and especially in our own model of prayer that we do, ACTS. Now, ACTS is not a legalistic idea. It's not that every time you pray, you got to hit your adoration, your confession, thanksgiving, and supplication segments, or else you, you fail. But I think what it is, it's a well-rounded template for us when we pray. If prayer is left just to ourselves to figure out what we're going to say to God at any given time, I find, at least for myself, if I don't at least consider that ACTS abbreviation, that my prayers will start to default to either only confession or only adoration, or only supplication. But prayer is supposed to be, we've heard this cliche a lot, prayer is a conversation with God. But when we have conversations with God, imagine if you had a friend that only ever came to you to ask you for stuff. Or if you had a friend that only ever flattered you, but was never really faithful to you as a friend. Or a friend that only ever came to you to just say how bad and terrible they are, you get what I'm saying? When we come to God, but we only focus on one element, we actually, what we end up doing is we distort the gospel itself because we're not thinking about it in all the categories that we should. But yet Jesus gives us such a simple template to follow in the Lord's Prayer, but yet the Lord's Prayer beautifully addresses all of those blind spots that we seem to have when we do pray. And especially with the thing about myself Sometimes I think prayer is my weakest category of life because when I don't think about those four different elements of prayer, I normally do just run out of things to say. Or worse, if we're sitting in here on a Sunday, we start to think, 
my gosh, we're praying again. Didn't, didn't we just pray two minutes ago? Didn't we just have a time of prayer and now we're praying again? But it's so important that we realize as a church, really the reason that we organize things the way that we do in here is because each time we're praying for a different thing. Each time we're praying in a different way. But yet it's all biblical. And what that's doing for us is when we come in here, we're informed by that. And then we go individually and in our own families and we model that. If we pray with our children and we lead prayer, but we only ever say prayers to God that's just asking Him, just prayers of supplication, just asking Him for stuff, what we're really saying to our kids is, it doesn't really matter how we think about God, adoration. It just matters that we pray and ask Him for stuff. So then your child grows up and they think prayer is asking God for stuff. Now it is. He encourages us to give us this day our daily bread. But He also encourages us to hallow God's name. That His name would be hallowed. That He would be adored. Do you see what's happening in the Lord's Prayer? We're instructed to have a full scope of what prayer is. And that's what we do here at church. That's if you ever wonder, why do we order worship the way that we do? Not, not every church does this. Not even every Presbyterian church does this. But this is a, a historic, historic model of worship. And I think it really does hit all the high points of how we should consider God. First corporately and then when we leave individually and in our families. So I thought that that would be helpful for us to just have a brief survey of how the Lord's Prayer relates to our worship here and also to let you know about what's happening in our worship service, the adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Because at least for me in my life, it's been pretty monumentally helpful in my own time of prayer. Ever since I've discovered that whole acronym, which has been around for quite a long time, it's really done a lot for me in my own life when I pray because I try to make sure that I'm being well-rounded in my conversations with the Lord. Uh, let me pray for us and we'll dismiss. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. And I certainly hope that you now have a much better grasp of the way to go about praying that honors the Lord and is really biblical at the end of the day. So I hope that that was very encouraging and insightful for you. I hope that you're able to take that and start to implement what we've learned today in your prayer life, literally from here on out for the whole rest of your life. I mean, we can't go beyond what the Lord has said. We certainly won't graduate from the best way we could possibly pray. I do find that acronym of ACT and S really helpful for me because when I use that, when I pray, it reminds me that I'm not only asking the Lord for something, but I'm also acknowledging who He is. It's that relationship status. It's what sets us apart from treating God as a Santa Claus or as some kind of cosmic gift giver that we really don't care about. It really brings us back to the fact that we have been called to relationship with the Lord, to enjoy Him. And that's such a great privilege when we think about that as part of our prayer life. Well, thanks again for listening to the podcast. Please leave a review for this podcast over on iTunes if you've been helped, if you've enjoyed the content that you've been hearing so far, and enjoy the rest of your week. Look forward to another episode with you real soon.